This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Hilda Wayne and let me tell you sisters, we have some really exciting and insightful episodes coming up in the next few weeks. From talking to women in comedy and sport to finding out how period pain impacts your everyday lives. But because we've been so busy planning them, we had to give ourselves a little break in the weekly schedule. I hope you don't mind. So I want to take this opportunity to look back at some of my favorite topics and interviews that we've done so far on Sisters Let's Talk. Our stories and histories across the Pacific have always been spoken in legends, sung and danced, woven into mats, carved into wooden objects, and of course, tattooed onto our bodies. The appearance of tattoos from the Pacific are distinctive and clear identifiers of a woman's origin, whether it is a full face and a torso in the southern region of Papua New Guinea, a half body in Fiji, or a thigh in Samoa. For a long time after missionaries came, tattoos were banned in many areas. In some places, they were hidden for both men and women. And then for a long time, it was male-dominated. But now what we're seeing is that more women are looking into it as an expression of their culture. And there is a growing number of incredible women who are tattoo artists. One of them is Julia Mangeo Gray. She is from PNG, and she has made a series of documentaries about tattoos in the Pacific. I spoke to Julia in our first season of Sisters Let's Talk. And she told me how it was her grandmother's marks that led her to pick up the tools of this ancient trade. For as long as I was around, she'd always had them. So I think like a lot of us, we were so used to seeing our bubbles with their poipoi ever ever that we kind of just took it for granted. The very first time that I looked at her designs or understood what her designs were about was when she had already passed and realizing that our Mekio Popwa was very different to um, say Roro or Motuan cultures. I had always admired them, but I had never thought to be the person to actually make or make the marks, put the ink into the skin. I remember when she first, um, I asked her to give me a design because I really wanted to mark my skin with um, one of her designs and she drew it on paper. And then I took that and I got that put onto my skin by, you know, a machine tattooist. What did they look like and are they different from one uh, Motuan culture to another? Sure. You know, our marks are, they're cultural identifiers. So they'll be different from region to region. In Motu itself, there's many villages and in those villages, the designs belong to families And so they identify who you belong to. And the stories are personal and connected to your particular families. All of the marks talk about the transitions from a young girl into a woman. And that's definitely what it was in the past. Today, the marks are about transitions as well, but it's not so much about womanhood or becoming a woman and sort of marking each part of your growth into being a a woman. But Yeah, the designs are different. You mentioned a bit about where you come from and uh, can you uh, explain a bit which tribe in the Motuan people and um, what role those tattoos played for women in your community? So in Central Province, it's a woman's practice and where I come from is not Motu, it's Mekeo. For us, 
it really is just about being a woman, celebrating a woman. They also show how strong you are being a woman wearing the marks. They also show your social connection and your wealth and who you're connected to in your families. And so it's a visual language and it lets people know that that particular individual, one, is strong, was able to endure the pain, and two, you know, is connected to these people. You, you can't just get marked and, and not have connections. So that's Meke or Roro. Um, the marks are different. Motu is different as well. So my village is specifically Inawi village in Meke. That's the government name, otherwise known as Waisaka. I'm learning a lot. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. So um, I guess your uh, curiosity or interest in, in tattoos, not only you stayed with your people, but you decided to do a documentary exploring tattoos in mm. the Pacific. What did you learn about tattoos in general in the Pacific? Oh, gosh, I learned so much. I think um, there were four of us in the beginning. Two of the ladies were from Gabba Gabba Village. Another of the ladies was from Ula. And then, of course, myself from Mekio. And the whole idea was to raise awareness because our old women, they're passing away now and a lot of them have already left us. And the idea was to raise awareness, go to these villages, collect what we could or record these women talking. But we were encouraging people to talk to their bubus and record somehow document the marks on their skin so that they weren't lost. And they, it's, it's different from uh, one country to another as well? Or are there similar oh, stories yes, behind totally. tattoos? There are similarities in the Pacifica region. So basically from Taiwan, Taiwan people, all the way through for the Philippines, Sarawak in Borneo, all the way through from the Maluka people into Papua New Guinea itself, all the way through to Fiji, Samoa, Tahiti, Tonga, Kiribati, the whole region, we all wear marks. The marks will tell you where each people come from. They are just literally cultural identifiers. In the very first documentary, I travelled through Tahiti, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, of course, um, Samoa, and exploring all these different practitioners from these different countries and learning about their cultural practice in, you know, marking skin um, and then realising that we really needed to bring ours back to. From the first documentary, I started to pick up the tools and do the work as well. Now, you're a tattoo artist. Tattoos are coming back. Mm-hmm. What, what are women getting inked onto their skin? And um, do they have the sort of similar t- sort of meaning behind what they're getting onto their skin? Or is it just for, uh, let's just say, decoration? Or what is it? What are you observing mm-hmm. and finding out? The decoration side of things is um, we try to stay away from that because it's not just about decoration. Our old bubbles, their marks, there's so much meaning connected to that. And then just to make them about decorations takes away from the many, many women before us and why they wore these marks. And then if you just put it on your skin to make it pretty, it's beautiful, but you can do more than that. And so what we do now is with Papua New Guineans, especially Central Province, you know, they'll bring their designs and then we rework their family designs and we place that onto the skin. And a lot of that knowledge comes from understanding our dance, our danis. So that's the important work with Papua New Guineans. But with other cultures, we're looking at designs that belong to them and then we, we rework them to balance their bodies. And so for us, 
the essence of our work is about transitions. You have to mark the transitions. You don't just get them and put them on like a stamp or a decoration. You take these designs and you tell that person's story. And through that design and how you place it, you know, you really connect them to place. Especially for us that are living outside of our countries of origin, the marks really help, one, for your own identity and two, for others to understand that you are more than what they see you as. Once you put your reva reva, your papa onto your skin, you tell people that you are connected um, and that you're proud to be where you're from. So it's really about decolonizing our skin. That's Julia Mangeo Gray, documentary maker and tattoo artist from PNG. This is Sisters Let's Talk with Hilda Wayne. Type 2 diabetes is one of the biggest health issues facing Pacific people. A recent study from the World Health Organization points to women and girls, the people who typically feed their families, as being key to stopping this epidemic. But does that make us the problem as well as the solution? And will this be yet another burden on women who are already buckling under other societal pressures? So what exactly is type 2 diabetes and why is it killing so many of the people we love? Dr. Seriana Natuman is a doctor in Vanuatu, where an average of 1 in 11 people live with type 2 diabetes. I spoke to her own sisters in our second season. Uh, I think a lot of people know what diabetes is. It's uh, um, usually a lifestyle disease. It's more of a resistance to insulin. So your body develops a resistance because of your lifestyle to insulin. And so you're unable to transport glucose uh, or sugar into your cells to use it up. Um, And so it uh, accumulates in your body and then increases your sugar levels. What are some common symptoms of type 2 diabetes? So when your sugars are not controlled, the symptoms they can have is uh, polyuria. So they pass a lot of urine. They're thirsty a lot. They lose a lot of weight, unintentional weight loss. Um, and also they start having visual, visual problems, equity problems. So they, their vision's a lot cloudy compared to what it was before. It can uh, impact women also in very different ways. Can you run through some of those impacts? Yeah, um, in women, so sometimes we have gestational diabetes. So women that are pregnant and they end up with uh, Uh, diabetes. And usually after pregnancy, it's associated with pregnancy, it should resolve uh, unless they are type 2 diabetes. So before, like for example, in Vanuatu, we used to have those 50 years and above with type 2 diabetes. Now we have women as young as 30 years old. um, And then that also affects some of the women who are obese with diabetes. It affects their fertility as well uh, when they want to have a family. What impact can that have on a baby? Yeah, so if it's gestational diabetes, uh, their babies go macrosomic, which means their babies are quite large. Um, and then, so during delivery, there might be issues uh, in delivering the baby itself. Uh, but also, when, once the baby is delivered, they have very low sugar levels. Um, and if you do not catch it quite early, it can affect the baby because they usually say low sugar is worse than uh, high sugar and because you can have certain problems with it as well. And then when you have, uh, for women, uh, for example, when they have other conditions uh, associated with obesity as well, like polycystic ovarian disease, which is also associated with diabetes, they find it very hard to have babies. 
And also if their diabetes is not well controlled and they're at the childbearing age, uh, some of these women can lose their babies. They can have miscarriages quite early during their pregnancy. Type 2 diabetes has become so common in the Pacific that we have begun to accept it as inevitable. But this is not the case. Type 2 diabetes can be avoided. I asked Dr. Nautuman what we can do to tackle it. I think a lot of awareness on on the fact that it is a lifestyle disease and um, women tend to, once you have children, you you really uh, focus on your family. So they really do have less time for themselves, less time to exercise. Um, So they tend to be obese and then you, you develop all these conditions. And then, so a lot of awareness on how diabetes is, comes about and how to prevent it. So simple exercising and also those types of sugary food, they need to, the content of uh, food, they need to revert back to what we used to have in the old days, you know, going back to the uh, island kaikai. Do not fill up your plate with all your taro, your kumala. Don't eat all the rice, you know. Because of rice, a lot of us are having diabetes. Dr. Natumun says governments have a role to play in encouraging healthier choices. And I think the government can help by trying to tax a lot of these food items, like the sugary drinks, like in Vanuatu, we've just started it, make island kakao more, more cheaper than uh, some of the food in our shops because we find a lot of packaged foods in the shop are quite cheaper and the ones coming in the market are becoming much more expensive than the ones that are imported. And you are at the front line, you see, you know, people impacted by diabetes. Uh, what do you observe in the hospitals? If we compare 10 years ago, our, our hospitals were filled with infectious disease, so tuberculosis, pneumonia, and not diabetes. We had one or two patients with diabetes. That's 10 years ago. And now every second bed in the hospital is a diabetes complication. Either it is their foot with an amputation Uh, coming in with a sepsis, or they have kidney issues. Their kidney is end-stage kidney disease, and they need a dialysis, which we cannot offer them. They have eyes problem. They have retinopathy, and usually at the terminal stage, where we we can't do much with that, where they might need laser treatment. And then we have all those with heart attacks. And heart attacks before in Vanuatu 10 years ago, we had one or two. Now we're having, in one week, we can have up to 10 people admitted over the you know, five days with heart attack. And usually it's because they have underlying diabetes with them. Type 2 diabetes can be controlled if it's diagnosed and treated early. But Dr. Nautuman told me many people don't come to see her until it's too late. We observe a lot of people coming in quite late. And a majority of them knew they had diabetes or even high blood pressure, but they decided not to take their medications. They decided to either also go into uh, traditional medications, a traditional healing. Uh, and so they can go 10 years without medication. And by the time they present at the hospitals, they already have some terminal complications. And a majority of these uh, terminal complications are kidney failure. And in Vanuatu, because we do not have the dialysis, uh, a lot of these people do have, they do lose their lives. Pacific Islanders, we just eat to be full Social gatherings are places where we just love interacting and eating a lot and filling up that plate. We need to start um, educating people to to serve a lot more healthier food as well as watching what they eat and also exercising, um, how much exercise is good for them. Um, and you need to at least 
start this quite early when the kids are at school rather than later because, you know, they can make changes when they're quite young and make it a habit. Once you're getting older, sometimes it's quite difficult to, to change your lifestyle because you're quite used to it. That's Dr. Serena Natuman, a doctor in Vanuatu, on the front line of the type 2 diabetes crisis. You might have heard journalism described as the fourth estate or a watchdog. But that's because it's our job to make powerful people accountable, investigate corruption, human rights violations and unethical practices and keep you informed. But journalists and journalism are under threat around the world. The rapid spread of misinformation on social media Budget constraints, workplace harassment, and harsh media laws have had disastrous effects, especially in the Pacific. So it is no wonder news across the region has deteriorated. For women in journalism, the risks are even greater. Jennifer Kusapa has been a journalist in Solon Islands for nearly 20 years and has covered nearly every news round. But despite her experience, she too has faced pushback and legal disputes over her work. I mainly do court reporting and police stories, and sometimes I cover women's stories, economic stories. When you do report on like sensitive issues like murder or any killing incident like that, sometimes they did not want you to go and cover the story, and we are finding difficulties sometimes doing coverage on those type of issues. Like you mentioned, you've done court reporting. Have there been a time when there was a particular topic where you pressured or intimidated as a journalist while you were reporting on court matters? Yeah, uh, I have sometimes the accused or the the relatives of the accused when uh, covering the relative in court. Sometimes they are called up at the office and try to threaten me and during the election uh, trials, the petitions, when uh, we go to the courts for reporting, the other party would give some sarcastic comments and they would shout at you, oh, you come here for cut another, like they using your pen to cut and spoil our relatives in your paper. They would say those words to us. So, yeah, doing reporting in the courts is really challenging as well because people like in the Solomon Islands, almost everyone knows you, so sometimes you can't hide it. Yeah? Mm. You may have started when there was no social media around and no Facebook was not even big. Now it's different now. It's changed the landscape of the way reporting is done in our region and I guess the world as well. In terms of online harassment, is that an issue with yourself as a female journalist and your female colleagues in Solomon Islands today? Yeah, in terms of Yabusa, people, they can harass you online. They post badly, put comments on you, targeting you. Like They would post unnecessary, some abusive words towards you. So sometimes as, as a female, I would not feel comfortable to like go out in the public or more exposed to other places where I think those people will be there. Mm, I get you. This is something that I also face on a regular basis on social media, but I guess we just learn to grow a thick skin. And that's very unfortunate. 
in terms of, um, you know, we talk about glass ceilings for women. Are women able to advance in journalism at the same pace as men or is that not something that you observe? Like for me, I think, I mean, from my own experience this year, it's my 16 years in working with the newspaper. But I have worked with most male colleagues. So all of them were given the opportunity to go and do trainings and in the newsroom. Only male are leading the newsroom due to this job. It's a male-dominated job. So only my male colleagues have the opportunity to do further trainings and lead us and take up the like the supervising role or leading role in our newsroom. For me and my my other female colleague, we are always uh, left out. Just follow what the men are saying. So yeah, that's really sad to hear. I mean, you have got so much wealth of experience, and you're not given the opportunity to opportunity to train and advance yourself. Yeah. That's really discriminating. And um, look, I just wanted to say your colleagues might be listening to you speak like this. Is that you? Are you okay with that? <laughs> well, they will look, be happy with me if they hear it. <laughs> well, but you need to say it. Hopefully they hear you and they will say, look, you know, it's time for them to change their minds about the way they see you and your, you know, your woman, their woman colleague. Yeah. <laughs> Good on you. Hopefully this does not sort of have a negative impact on young, the young upcoming journalists, women journalists who want to join this profession. What would be your advice to young women journalists? I would advise them they need to work hard, need to uh, don't let themselves down, but we need to come out and walk alongside with the men and show themselves that they can do something. They can do it as men can do too. And what about the men who are listening to you? Uh, I want to ask the men to respect women, give them opportunity, encourage their colleagues. Like uh, They should not be selfish with any opportunity that comes. They should give the female the opportunity to learn and train so that they too can work together with them for the betterment of the media industry in the country. What a qualified, talented, and strong voice for women in the media in Solomon Islands. That's Island Sun journalist Jennifer Kusapa. The way we commemorate those who have passed on is an important and beautiful part of being a Pacific Islander. Our rituals vary from country to country, village to village, and even between families. In Tonga. Cutting off the air is commonly performed by women and children or those of a lower rank to the deceased. In Fiji, the mourning period lasts for 100 days before grievous old Vakatarai Sulu ceremony. In Enga province in Papua New Guinea, some women mourning the loss of a child cut off part of their finger. My father passed away during COVID and I have done contribution in terms of helping to organize traditional mourning rituals relating to my dad's house cry or house of mourning. I value the ceremonies because it is a way of showing respect, in this case to my dad, but also throughout different cultures in my province as well as PNG. It's the moral support for families who lose a loved one and also the money and goods that are contributed to help with the funeral expenses and so forth. It's a time of sorrow, but it sort of helps share the loss when communities and families come together. I spoke about this with Dr. Andrina Thomas, who is involved with the Vanuatu Widows Association. 
She comes from Matanzas village in Espiritu Santos, Big Bay area. In our island, we descend from a matrilineal lineage descent society. So women, women actually form a very, very important basis of uh, lineage uh, in Matantas, in, in the Big Bay area. So, you know, and, and when it comes to actually mourning, uh, women are actually very fundamental as well because uh, you'll see them working with men. And our, our men also work very closely with women in ensuring that uh, you know, we bring people together and if people are coming from outside to actually share grief with us that, you know, those people, um, you know, physical needs, uh, food and all that are catered for. So you, you'll see a lot of uh, people working together to ensure that there's food uh, cooked to serve to people who, who, who come over to share the grief with the family in Matantas. From the Panama province itself, it's it's a process that starts on day one and ends on day 100. So it's it's a very expensive affair uh, for somebody having to lose, um, you know, a loved one and having to um, light the fire. So when you say uh, light the fire from day one to day 100, that fire must keep on burning until day 100 when we will finally in um you know the gathering and then we can ex- extinguish the fire and say okay that's it we've, we've um, sort of um, come together to remember this person who has passed away and after 100 days we can now um, go back to our individual lives so th- that's a um, one of the islands that actually practices a comprehensive and and a very expensive exercise of burial um, uh, ritual in, in Matantas itself, we have three different um, commemoration. So we have five days after the person has died. So the when the person dies today, you count that as day one. Five days thereafter, we'll have a get-together and people come together and we do another communal um, feast. And then we have day number 10. Uh, we do the same thing. And then... We um, separate and then we come together again on day number 100 when that's the final gathering to say, you know, goodbye to the deceased person. So and then once the the person has um, been buried, uh, what happens is that the families will look at, you know, the list of people who came along with uh, various handouts. So if they came with a bag of rice or they came with chicken or they came with mats or they came with whatever, to, to show um, uh, their sorrow, then you have another ritual where you have to go back to those particular people and, and say thank you for participating in the death of um, uh, our loved ones, and then you give them something in return. So it's a, a reciprocal arrangement where somebody brings something over, but they also get reciprocated at the end of the mourning period. These important rituals, how do they help the living, those who are mourning? How does it help them? Well, the, the people who are living, um, they're mourning the death of somebody who's uh, passed away. But seeing people coming from you know all over the place, if, if that person is a very important uh, person, you will see a lot of people come over to, to show their grief. For example, I'll, I'll talk about uh, my brother who was a former MP that passed away and my maternal uncle, which was the last lineage of my, my mother's um, generation. We had, uh, you know, a lot of people coming from the Big Bay area to show their grief when, when these two uh, very important people passed on. 
And because both of them were chief, those people really needed to be there to to show that, you know, uh, they respected, um, you know, these persons very well and that they were there during the period when they were being buried. And it's important when you see people coming and you know that uh, that person who's passed on has actually made an influence on the lives of other people. And because my brother was a former MP and he was a very, you know, sociable person that assisted a lot of people, you had a lot of his uh, supporters come to support us during the, the grieving period. And also my maternal uncle, who was um, a big chief in, in the Matantas area, uh, we also had a lot of people coming over. Dr. Andrew Thomas is from the Vanuatu Widows Association. Thank you so much for joining me on Sisters Let's Talk. I hope you enjoyed revisiting these interviews as much as I did. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, we all have a sister who makes us laugh. But what opportunities are there for Pacific women in comedy? She used to do impersonations of my dad, which were brilliant. And my dad was a good sport about it, you know, because we would all laugh. That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production presented by me, Hilda Wayne. Our producer is Alice Matthews, supervising producer is Kim Lester, and Falianga Fulu, Inga Stunsna, is our executive producer. Sisters Let's Talk is created on Wiradjuri, Nanobol, Nambri, Yagura, Turrbal, and Darunbol country. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Emtasona bungimu next time.